Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. That's on page 303 in the Bibles in front of you. And then also, once you find that one on 303, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 1, which is on page 1373. So we're going to look we're going to look very briefly at that ch- first chapter of Matthew before we look at Joshua 2. So Joshua 2, Matthew 1. Um, this Advent, we're doing a sermon series called The Mothers of Jesus. If you have a really crisp memory and you've been here a while, then maybe you will remember that 11 years ago, Pastor Dieters and, and I did a sermon series with the exact same title. Um, this one's going to be a little bit different, but the title, you're correct, is exactly the same. Um, but take a, take a look, um, if you got Matthew chapter 1 there. Matthew chapter 1 is the first book of the New Testament. And the very first thing that we get in the New Testament is an absolutely thrilling genealogy. That's sarcasm. Take a look. <clears throat> it says, <clears throat> This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, and so on and so on. It goes on from there. I'm not going to keep reading. You get the idea. But we have to talk about this for a second. Why does the Gospel of Matthew, why does the New Testament begin with a genealogy of the ancestry of Jesus tracing him all the way back to Abraham? The short answer is, it's because for Jewish people in the first century, genealogies were very, very, very important. Someone's genealogy was sort of like their resume. So their genealogy would tell you what you ought to think about someone and how you were to classify someone in what class or caste you ought to put someone and how someone ranked relative to your social status. So if you had a very impressive um, genealogy, then it made you look really good in other people's eyes, and it would open doors for you, and you had more opportunities. And if you had a really impressive genealogy, you would wear that thing on your sleeve, and you would bring it up in parties as much as you could. But if you had a genealogy that was not so impressive, or maybe even worse, a genealogy that was embarrassing, then it would make you look suspicious in other people's eyes. And it would close doors for you. And it would make you want to change the subject at parties whenever genealogies came up. So these these things, these genealogies, were very important to first century Jewish people. And because the Gospel of Matthew was written by a first century Jewish person for first century Jewish people, it only made sense that this is the way that everything was introduced, that Jesus was introduced by reading his genealogy. But here's the thing. No one had ever seen a genealogy like this before. Ever. On one hand, this is a really, really impressive genealogy. Jesus has a genealogy that could place him on the throne of Israel. Like, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, all the way through uh, uh, David and Solomon and all of the rest. At least the first half of Jesus' genealogy is incredibly 
impressive. But that is not the most remarkable thing about his genealogy. The most remarkable thing about Jesus' genealogy is that it contains the names of women. And that never happens. Like, literally, never. There are five women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. During this time in history, women were not considered to be heirs. Women were just necessary details in genealogies. Only men were heirs. Men inherited things from other men who inherited things from other men who inherited things from other men who inherited things from other men. Women were not a factor in any of this. They were an unnecessary detail. Therefore, they were not a factor in any genealogical accounting except, apparently, in the accounting of the family of Jesus. Which, if you know and love Jesus, isn't that just kind of the backwards thing that you would expect, right? Here's the thing. The women who are included in the genealogy of Jesus are not the women that you would expect. It's not the great and famous matriarchs who are listed. It is not Rebecca and Leah and Rachel and Sarah about whom there are chapters and chapters of Scripture written. No, no, no. The five women in the genealogies of Jesus are five women of ill repute. These are five women who were disdained in their time, who were disdained by their cultures. These are five women, all of whom had a sketchy sexual history to a person. Why on earth would these five women be mentioned by name in the genealogy of Jesus when no other genealogies were even mentioning women? That's what we're going to try to look into this Advent, okay? So the first woman whose story, the first mother of Jesus whose story that we're going to study is Rahab. Rahab is mentioned in Matthew 1, verse 5. It happens very quickly. She's mentioned as the wife of Salmon and the mother of Boaz. And her story is in Joshua 2, verses 1 through 15. Let's have her read. Joshua 2, 1 through 15. Listen to God's word. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go over to the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had, the, had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, uh, two men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But Rahab had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. 
So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies laid down for the night, Rahab went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, Rahab said, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell me what we, what we are doing, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. This is the word of the Lord. So Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho who aided and abetted two Israelite spies in exchange for her and her family's lives. And she ends up being one of the five women named in the genealogy of the Savior of the universe. Why? What is so remarkable about Rahab? Rahab was savvy, and she was resourceful, and she was shrewd, and she was creative. But that's generally not the kind of thing that lands you in the genealogy of Jesus. So it's interesting. Uh, besides this genealogy of Jesus... Rahab is mentioned two other times in the New Testament, which is actually quite a lot. She is mentioned in the book of James and in the book of Hebrews, where she is commended not only for her, her um, quick-wittedness and her shrewdness, but where she is commended for her faith. Rahab is commended for her faith. Uh, if you know the book of Hebrews, Rahab is one of the people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as having a truly remarkable faith, um, a, a, a brand and a potency of faith that few other human beings in all of history have ever exhibited. There are 13 people mentioned in the book of Hebrews for having a truly exemplary faith, and Rahab is one of them. But as we read this story of Rahab... I'm guessing you didn't find yourself amazed at her faith. I'm guessing that wasn't the thing that just jumped off the page at you. When I tend to think about faith, I tend to think about somebody like Noah, who is also one of these 13 people mentioned in Hebrews. Noah 
one day woke up and heard a voice in his head. And that voice in his head told him to build a gigantic boat in the middle of the desert, and it took him a hundred years, and he did it. Now that is some crazy faith, right? That is a faith, my friends, that I do not have and I do not know if I even want to have. That is the kind of thing that jumps out at me when I'm reading the scriptures. Somebody like Noah. Now there's a gargantuan faith, right? How is Rahab in the same category as Noah when it comes to faith? Have you ever heard the saying... A strong faith in a weak object can kill you. A strong faith in a weak object can kill you. So if you're going to climb a tree and you're looking at which one of these branches am I going to sit on and have lunch, okay? and you choose to sit on a rotted out limb and you put all of your faith and all of your weight on that routed, uh, rotted out limb, it doesn't matter how much you believe in the strength of that limb, your faith is not going to make that limb any stronger. A strong faith in a weak object can kill you. And guess what? The opposite of that is also true. A weak faith in a strong object can save you. A weak faith in a strong object can save you. If that branch is firm and it is strong and it is healthy, a weak little faith in that great big strong branch, just the teeny tiny littlest amount of faith to trust your weight on that branch and you will be safe. A weak faith in a strong object can save you. Here's the point. The key to our faith is not The strength of our faith. The key to our faith is the object of our faith. The object in which we are putting all of our faith. If the branch is rotten, you can believe like Noah. You can have a faith like Noah in the strength of that branch, but if that branch is rotten, you are falling all the way to the ground. But if that branch is solid, All you need is just the teeny tiniest little amount of faith and you will be safe. The key to our faith is not the strength of our faith. The key to our faith is the object in which we put our faith. Rahab's faith wasn't great, wasn't uh, so wonderful because she believed so hard or so purely or without doubt or so perfectly. That's not, that's not it at all. In fact, it seems to me that she was just making the smartest decision in the moment. Like, she was just being shrewd. She saw the writing on the wall. The spies were in her home. She had heard the thing about what the army of the spies had done, and she thought, ugh, I wonder if I can strike a deal because that branch seems to be a lot stronger than the one that I'm on. Rahab was being shrewd. In reality, what makes her faith isn't that she believed so perfectly or so accurately. In reality, what made her faith great was simply that she came to have faith in the living God. 
It was the object of her faith that gave her faith strength. Little did she know, she had just grabbed onto the strongest branch in the entire forest. And because she had the tiniest little bit of faith in that great big branch that would never fail her, she was entirely safe. Now, there's something really interesting that's happening in the text here um, in in Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua 2, when Rahab is kind of negotiating with these two spies that are hiding on her roof, she makes a very interesting request of them. It's in verse 12. In verse 12, she says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. The Hebrew word that Rahab uses here for kindness in this verse is the word hesed. The Hebrew word hesed. If you've been around church for a while, maybe you've heard of this word hesed. Apart from the Hebrew name for God, hesed might be the most important word in all of the Old Testament. So um, in our versions of the Bible, hesed is translated as kindness, which is fine. That's a, a literal perfect translation. But maybe more accurately... The word has said could be translated as grace. Rahab asks for grace. See, has said is the Old Testament version of the grace that we find in Jesus in the New Testament. Has said is the word that means love for the sake of love. It's the word that means grace for the sake of grace. It's it's a word that means unmerited acceptance and forgiveness and love. So in the Old Testament, we're reading the Old Testament, and whenever we hear the word hesed, we're actually hearing echoes of Jesus. Or maybe more accurately, we're hearing this kind of prelude of Jesus. We're hearing this prelude of this kingdom that he's bringing with him, and it's crescendoing, and it starts out as this hesed, and it becomes this grace that becomes known to the whole world in this ultimate advent. And get this, the word hesed, which you find all over the Old Testament, occurs only three times in the book of Joshua only in the story of Rahab. She's the only one who ever brings it up in the whole book of Joshua. And if you know the book of Joshua, it's an ugly book. We're talking about, it's a, it's a war book. It's a conquest book. It's a subjugation book. And the only one in the whole book who's talking about grace is a pagan prostitute named Rahab who has just enough faith to climb on to the strongest branch in the forest, which will never, ever let her down. In the book of Joshua, Rahab is the only one who ever talks about grace, and it makes her a hero of the faith. So we can look back on this story of Rahab 
And this is what I did in my research this week. And I thought, like, where did she learn this? She didn't hear someone else say the word and then copy it herself. Like, how did she know? How did she know about grace? How did she know about hased? Where did she learn this from? There were no, there were no ancient Mesopotamian gods who were dealing in hased. There were no cultures or communities or social movements that were rooted in grace. Where did Rahab come up with this incredible kind of faith? Well, just like everyone else's faith, Rahab's faith was a miracle of God. That's all. Just like your faith. It's just a miracle of God. It appears out of nowhere, out of the grace of God. It's not that she solved some kind of great riddle. It's not that she memorized enough scripture. It's not that, oh, she finally understood some theological truth in her brain. It's not that she believed so strongly and so purely and so perfectly or followed a law so strictly that she willed herself into that safety. That, that is not the strength that saved her. It was the strength of the branch that saved her. You know what Rahab did? She bet her whole life on grace. A cynic might say she had no other choice, but she did. She bet her whole life on grace. And seeing this, observing this, the God of the universe said, oh, I can use that. You know what I mean? He says, I can use that. I, I have a plan, Rahab, for your bloodline. You started to articulate something that I want to continue to draw out. You have murmured a grace in a moment of war that I want to sing about for the rest of existence. I want to do something with your bloodline, Rahab. You are going to fit in just fine with this thing that I am doing, this advent that I am bringing. That was Rahab's faith. She bet everything on grace. Brothers and sisters, this is Christianity. We bet everything on grace. We sell out to it entirely. We come just as we are without one plea but that his blood was shed for me. We surrender entirely to grace. The teeny, tiniest little bit of faith in that great, big, strong tree branch will never fail us. What might it look like for you to have faith like Rahab while we wait for Jesus? What might it look like for us to have faith that depends not on the quality of our own belief, but on the power in the one whom we believe? Suddenly our faith doesn't feel so much like a bludgeoning weapon, does it? Right? What might it look like for us to have enough faith to bet everything on grace. Pray with me.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this mother of Jesus, for the way that even before the world knew of him, she was showing us how he would affect the world. We thank you for the bloodline of Rahab. We thank you that her bloodline runs straight through our Savior and directly into each of us. And so now as we come to this table and we celebrate the body of your Son and the blood of your Son, help us realize and appreciate that what we participate in today is ancient and beautiful and strong and miraculous. In the power of your great big branch, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.